Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us from Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes. And Steve, as we wrap up the week, here's my question for you. Was this A, Trump's best week, B, Hillary's worst week, or both? I would say, I'm not sure it was Trump's best week, but I think Trump had his best half hour of the campaign. (laughs) Uh, His visit to Mexico, I think, defied expectations of most people who thought he would sort of fall on his face, given the fact that it was thrown together at the last minute, Mm -hmm. that he didn't, there hadn't been much planning, apparently. I mean, certainly there wasn't the kind of scouting that one would expect of a typical presidential Mm -hmm. campaign where it's planned weeks in advance and everything is scripted. Um, He had a very good 33-minute press conference uh, with the Mexican president. Uh, They stood next to one another. It looked presidential. Uh, They talked about their policies in relatively calm, reasonable, rational uh, Mm -hmm. ways. They they laid them out one next to the other, took a couple questions, and it was over. If you were buying what Hillary Clinton has been selling now for months and listening to, I think, the amplification of that message in the mainstream media... What you saw, what you'd, what you'd heard to that point was Donald Trump couldn't possibly be president. He's a threat right. to the republic. This is a disaster. I mean, some of us have made those same <laughs> arguments. Um, what you saw instead was a guy who at least mm-hmm. for that 33-minute press conference could actually look like a president. Right. And this is what's interesting to me, though, is that he comes back from that moment where, if, to put it in the broadest, most simple terms, he – he took the edge off. He he really did a, a big push towards the. Oh come on, I'm not that out there. I, I can be. I can talk to the guy from Mexico. What's the big deal? And then he goes straight back to Phoenix and straight back to his primary voter. We're gonna throw everybody out. We're gonna load them up in trucks. And you're thinking to yourself, how I get one or the other. I don't get both. Well, here's the problem. And and look, I mean, we've made this argument in our pages uh, repeatedly. I think what we saw in Mexico for those 33 minutes was not Donald Trump. I mean, what we saw in the speech that night was quintessential Donald Trump. And that's what we've seen over the course of this campaign. It's who he is. He's bombastic. He likes to pick a fight. He likes to please the audience sitting in exactly. front of him. Uh, he feeds on the love right. that they give him. And that accounts for a lot of why he does what he does. And, you know, we've heard now so many times ad nauseum um, – in aspirational terms from Republican elected officials who have chosen to back Donald Trump um, from the RNC and others, you know, this is going to be the pivot. Donald Trump 2.0, he can change. It's not going to happen. It was never going to happen. It was a ridiculous argument. And and we saw that. Mm -hmm. We saw that, I think, in stark relief on that day because you did see him pull off 33 minutes of looking presidential. And then you saw him revert back to Donald Trump. Well, you're a you know Trump-loathing creature of the establishment. I'm more open-minded and circumspect. I think you saw the best and worst of Trump in that day because the best was, as you pointed out, they were, they're nimble. They're dynamic. They get the email, hey, you want to come to Mexico? Which you know that whoever did that for President Nieto was like, no, this will never happen. Don't right. let it know. And then like 12 minutes later, he'll, what? Wait, you want to come to me? And they just did it. Like you said, they just made it happen. Yeah. It looked good. He was there. It's nimbleness. But with the nimbleness comes this lack of self-control, lack of discipline. It's right. like the kid who's really good at basketball, but it's tough playing with a team because he won't learn to play. He's got right. an unnatural skill. Right. He couldn't let go of what the crowd wanted for the greater, you know, the, the longer term strategy. And so you had these people on his campaign, the Hispanic outreach people just walking off his campaign I think in the end, this is going to end up being a net loss 
for him because of the damage that it does to that you know coalition of Hispanic. But now it's I, I think he's he's gone. I think Hispanic numbers are going to be terrible, and it's tough to win states like Colorado and Florida without them. Well, I think his Hispanic numbers were likely to be terrible, even if he had but, a successful day. Yeah. But look, yeah, you could see, and and there was I think hope for Trump supporters for a moment. I would say it was false hope, mm-hmm. but real hope if if you're a sort of diehard Trump supporter who, who hopes he can change his ways, that the press conference and the trip to Mexico was going to take his um, you know, his ability to be presidential and, and set it on a course for the next 70 days. That was the question, really. Could Donald Trump act for the next 70 days as he had in that press conference mm-hmm. and basically not be Donald Trump for 70 days to win the presidential election? Yeah, I think it was unlikely that he was ever going to be able to pull that off. Um, and he didn't. So what you right. saw was this false hope of, of Trump being somebody that people like Mitch McConnell and Reince Priebus and others have said he could be. And then basically mm-hmm. go back to being Donald Trump. And yet you have a slew of polls out this week showing that the race isn't over, that it's either competitive or possible. You have states like Wisconsin and Iowa that Republicans haven't carried. And Trump is very competitive there. Uh, and then to me, the most fascinating polls that answer how is this possible hillary's negatives return to their highest ever ever this week um is this because hillary's running a crummy campaign is or is this just because just like trump is self-limited by being trump the clintons are self-limited by being the clintons Clintons. i I would say both is the answer to that question i mean if you look at go back to um Shortly before her press conference at the United Nations, March 10th, 2015, it's her first press conference about the emails. Right. There's a Quinnipiac poll taken five days earlier, March 5th, 2015. And Hillary was leading every conceivable Republican. She was dominating the Democratic nominating process. And her favorable rating was, I believe, 48 percent. Her unfavorable rating was 45. So she was above water, doing well. People had some questions and concerns about the email controversy, but it hadn't sunk her. Mm -hmm. Her favorable rating now is a net negative 20 in some of these polls. And and the response is on the question as to whether she's honest and trustworthy. Two to one, Americans believe she's not honest and trustworthy. And you know, I have to say of the 30 percent who think she is honest and trustworthy, if, have you been reading the newspapers? <laughs> She's, the, they, those are all journalists, lawyers and used car salesmen. Or people in comas. Right. They're not actually <laughs> sentient beings at this point. I, I think that is that is a main problem. And what's so interesting is you go back and you, you look at, you know, near the beginning of 2016 when we actually started to have – nominating contests. And there was this sense, I was rereading old news clips from the time and and transcripts of of broadcasts. There was a sense of where people who were covering Hillary Clinton who were saying at the time, she's turned the corner on this email controversy. Because Mm -hmm. remember, it was the end of the State Department's forced release of those emails. Um, She had gotten away more or less without talking about it beyond that press conference. And then one after another after another of her statements from that original press conference was proven to be false. Right. And now in an embarrassing way, and we're getting into, you know, we've, we've seen the merging of what I think most people portrayed as two different stories. The foundation story on the one hand, the email story on the other hand. They really, in reality, were always the same exactly. story. And I think, you know, you could make a pretty good argument that one of the reasons we had the email set up was because of the arrangements with the Clinton Foundation. Well, of course it was. I mean, the Clinton Foundation was a way to accept graft 
technically within the confines of the law, theoretically, and the emails had to be off the books so that people couldn't see her solicitations and graft. I mean, you had uh, diplomatic visas that are, you know, tightly legally controlled, and you've got people trying to get to North Korea using the Clinton Foundation to right. get those visas. And the answer, well, it's for a good cause. Well, if it's such a good cause, why don't you go to the State Department to make that cause? Right. Well, we don't have to because we're donors and right. we've got a special path. And that story goes on and on. Let me ask you about my favorite part of this because the thing about the Clintons is it's always worse. Remember, like, when the Paula Jones story came out and you start thinking, oh, my gosh, is this the kind of guy who would invite yeah, right. a woman and drop his – I mean, just right. the, remember, he dropped his pants. That was – I remember the icky thing. And then you find out about Monica and then leaving world leaders in the next room while you're – and mm. then cigar – and then just, it's just – it's that's what's happening with Hillary and these stories. Now yes. we have taxpayer money yeah. <laughs> going from the – Protect the president and give him a library fund or whatever, all that stuff, to I'm going to set up a server and run our scams and pay foundation bills using te- – not only are, is, is she running a corrupt racket, we have to help pay for it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's the key point about what we've learned since December when you had mainstream media types declaring that this controversy was basically over is it's not only grown and gotten bigger. Right. It's gotten worse in terms of what we've learned. And, you know, it's the foundation stuff. It's it's the potential taxpayer money going to this. Um, you know, it's it's Hillary Clinton's repeated declarations that she turned over all work related emails. I did a, an editorial for the magazine uh, for this week. Looking at that narrow slice of this controversy, the work-related email question, go back and you can find her saying repeatedly, including twice, at least twice, under oath, I turned over every single work-related email and every email that could conceivably related to my job as Secretary of State because she was trying to get in front of questions that these things could have been commingled. And it turns out now that we've seen this that she didn't at all turn over. Wasn't close. Turn over all work related emails. I mean, first you had revelations that she was emailing with David Petraeus before right. she didn't turn those over. Then she was emailing with Sidney Blumenthal, who was providing her private intelligence on things like Libya and other mm-hmm. State Department matters. Then we learn that she's emailing with her top aides, not turning those over to the State Department, mm-hmm. the FBI. And finally, we have this this claim from uh, James Comey back in, in July that. There are several thousand. I mean, that's James. Those are his words. Several thousand work-related emails that she didn't turn over. And the the problem I think she faces is not only that she's been clearly caught in a lie about that. You know, this is not misleading. This isn't. Mm -hmm. This is a flat-out lie. The problem I think is that where that lie goes, like what what caused her to do this? It's inconceivable to think that they somehow missed. Several right. thousand emails out of 60,000, what were they actually covering up? And I think we're seeing in the day-to-day sort of drip, drip, drip of stories coming out now that it in all likelihood involved this these favors for the Clinton Foundation. And don't forget donors. the classified emails she sent after she right. left the Secretary of State's office about that deal with the what UAE or uh, someone in the Middle East. UAE, the one, two, three deal. Exactly, yep. one, two, three deal. So you got that. So Donald Trump can't keep it together. Hillary Clinton – Openly corrupt, but we still have to have an election in November. So I want to conclude the podcast with something else. December 4th through the 11th, it's the Weekly Standard Cruise. You guys are going out to the Caribbean. You'll be there. Bill will be there, whatever. To me, that's like a huge lifeline. What are these cruises actually like? What do you guys like when you get on a cruise in the Caribbean? It's going to be (laughs) December up north. It's going to be Caribbean for you guys. 
if for the people who go to weeklystandardcruise.com and get the info, what do, what do you guys get? What's it actually like? Um, well, I can tell you what I think a typical cruise is like, and I can tell you what I think this cruise is like. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect that there will be more alcohol consumed on this cruise, probably a lot more beers. Um, no, it's, I mean, I, look, I have, a, I have a great time doing it. I've taken my family on cruises in the past. We love it. Uh, it's just a fun opportunity to get together with people who, um, not all, but more or less, mm-hmm. see things uh, in the same way. And, you know, one of the comments I get from cruisers all the time, we host dinners, uh, the writers of the magazine, editors of the magazine host dinners every single night with a you know, group of six, eight, ten um, cruisers and have a long, com- you know, usually two, three, four-hour conversation. <laughs> Sometimes it goes to the bar afterwards. And one of the things I hear all the time is it's just so nice to see that there are people out there who think like I do. Right. Um, you know, and you feel particularly like cruisers from Massachusetts. Right. <laughs> I literally didn't know anybody thought this way. Um, but I think, look, I think, I think there will be a lot of note comparing. There will be a lot of looking back on so what happened? How do right. we explain this? So the last final key question. So when a cruiser bumps into you at the bar, what should they order for you? What is your drink of choice? Uh, well, I don't, they don't usually serve Pabst on, on <laughs> cruises you do or, awesome Wisconsin, or spotted you? cow. <laughs> oh, this is sad. Um, this is sad. I'll, I'll take- You want a Milwaukee's beat. You want I mean, a beast, don't l- you? Looking at my physique, physique the, the right answer is a light beer. <laughs> uh, but look, if you buy me a, a Miller High Life in the champagne bottle, I'll mm-hmm. be happy and I'll probably stick around and talk for a long time. Well, we appreciate you talking to us on the podcast, Steve. Thanks for your time. You bet. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard Podcast. Please be sure to check weeklystandard.com regularly for podcast updates. Also, you never have to miss a podcast. Go to iTunes.com and subscribe to the Weekly Standard Podcast and check out our new products with our friends at podcastone.com. I'm your host, Michael Graham.